Known as the acid bath murderer, he disposed of his victims in a way that would make even Heisenberg proud. Today, we discuss the blood connoisseur himself, John George Hay. Let's open the serial killer file. John was born in July of 1909 in England to a family that was dedicated to little pleasure and a lot of religion. John's parents were both members of the Plymouth Brethren, a Protestant group that was strict and unrelenting in its practice of worshiping God. Members would adhere to a lifestyle that lacked luxuries and focused on harsh living conditions to further propagate a need for faith. In order to not risk contamination from the outside world, John's father even confined his family to a fenced-in area where they lived, unable to roam freely. Eventually, however, the outside world did get its hands on John. He was awarded a scholarship to Wakefield Cathedral where he became a choir boy. John was conflicted by his experiences in the real world versus his limitations at home. The perspectives forced on him started to warp his mind, and as a result, John, as just a young boy, began experiencing vivid visions of dark forests where the trees would spew blood. At some point in his adolescence, he became curious and eventually obsessed with blood, often desiring to drink it. Eventually, in his early 20s, John had taken jobs with insurance companies and in advertising, until he was eventually fired under suspicion of theft. In 1934, John married the woman that would bear his child. Unfortunately, the marriage crumbled. His estranged wife had given birth to his daughter while he was in prison for fraud, but gave the baby up for adoption. Having been jailed and divorced, his family, still devout in their ways, disowned him from that point forward. Once released from prison in 1936, John moved to London where he became a chauffeur. He was the chauffeur to William Donald McSwan, a wealthy owner of a number of amusement parlors. Aside from driving Mr. McSwan to and from his desired destinations, McSwan also hired John to fix and tune up the amusement machines. John found a good friend in McSwan, and the two would often spend a lot of time together. But this wouldn't keep John out of prison, no. John still pursued a career as a fraudster and was caught time and time again, being thrown into prison multiple times. While in prison, he dreamt of what he considered to be the perfect murder, to dissolve a person's body in acid so that there was no body left to find. He worked with the acid in the prison and was supplied mice by other prisoners. He would drop them into the acid and watch them dissolve before his eyes. John was eventually released from a prison sentence in 1943 where he took up a job for an engineering firm. He used his money to rent a basement nearby where he kept all of his equipment. 
John eventually bumped into an old familiar face while visiting a pub in Kensington. It was his friend and former employer, William McSwan. William introduced John to his parents who had made mention that they had invested in some property and were making a decent amount of money. They trusted John with this information, but it would prove to be a great error. John had a love for money and a curiosity for murder. So John one day asked William McSwan to stop by his workshop, the basement he had been renting out. McSwan walked inside and was clubbed over the head with a hammer. John wasted little time. He took up a mug and a knife and slit McSwan's throat. He collected some of the blood in the mug and drank it. John promptly stuffed McSwan's body into a drum and poured sulfuric acid over him. The process took some time as he wasn't expecting the overwhelming fumes to arise from the reaction, but eventually he completely submerged McSwan's corpse. He waited two days before returning to check where he found McSwan's body turned to sludge. He waited for a good opportunity where he poured the drum's contents down into a manhole and returned back to his daily life. McSwan's parents eventually became worried over their son's sudden disappearance, but John assured them that he was just fine. He claimed that William had just moved to Scotland to avoid the draft, and considering William had spoke extensively about avoiding the draft of World War II, his parents believed it. But to even better solidify his claims, John would often visit Scotland and send postcards to McSwan's parents. John eventually led McSwan's parents into his workshop where they met the same fate as their son. He bludgeoned them, slit their throats, and drank their blood before disposing of their bodies in vats of acid. This time he had upgraded his equipment and was better prepared for the massive amounts of fumes that suddenly filled the room. Utilizing his skills as a fraudster, he managed to sell the family's properties and made off with 8,000 pounds which translates today as close to 300,000 pounds. But John had developed an unhealthy gambling addiction and was soon in need of more money and more murder. He eventually met another wealthy couple and displayed interest in purchasing a property they were selling. He made a connection with the husband, a doctor, and lured him to a new, improved workshop in West Sussex, where he claimed to have an invention to show him. He shot the doctor in the head with a revolver that he had stolen from the doctor, then notified the man's wife that her husband had fallen ill. He had her head to the workshop where he killed her as well. He drank their blood and disposed of them in the vats of acid. He managed to sell all of their possessions except for their dog, which he kept. John killed his final victim, a widow that resided in the same hotel as he did, by shooting her in the back of the neck stripping her of all her valuables and dissolving her in acid as well. A friend of the widow reported her missing, which eventually led detectives to John's workshop. Some of the human sludge was found and searched. Within it, a few human gallstones were recovered, as well as a piece of the widow's dentures, confirmed by her dentist to have belonged to his patient. Having been caught, John confessed to not only his six victims, but three more which were never found. John hid behind an insanity defense which was unable to convince the jury. It took them only minutes to find him guilty and the judge sentenced him to death. 
He died at the end of a noose in August of 1949 at the age of 40. Just goes to show that you never know if a good friend is just going to all of a sudden throw you into a vat of acid. But that will probably never happen to you. That's all in this file. Some parents will sacrifice just about anything, or should I say, anyone, to keep their children happy. This week we discuss the Italian serial killer Leonardo Cianciulli. Let's open the serial killer file. Leonardo's exact date of birth is subject to debate. However, it's believed she was born sometime in 1893 or 1894 in Italy. Since the day she was born, Leonardo was disregarded, lacking any love or affection from her parents. Emilia, Leonardo's mother, showed much distaste towards her due to the fact that she was conceived from rape. During this time, a young woman in Emilia's situation would have never felt safe reporting something as severe as rape to the authorities. Because of this, Emilia would have been forever rejected by the village community, publicly shamed, her honor sacrificed, and with no other options to turn to, Emilia was forced to marry her rapist, Mariano Cianciulli, in order to raise the child she didn't want with the man she didn't love. Living in a poverty-stricken town, Leonardo's life was miserable and unstable, to say the least. The emotional neglect that Leonardo experienced at the hands of her mother led to not one, but two separate suicide attempts as a child. Wanting to take life into her own hands as a grown woman, Leonardo went on to marry Raffaele Pensardi in 1917, an older gentleman who worked as a registry office clerk in her town. This angered her parents, particularly her mother, as they had already planned and arranged who Leonardo was destined to marry. Leonardo had always been a superstitious woman and also believed in spells and magic. It was during this time that she had a strong belief that her own mother had placed a curse on the newlyweds, desiring nothing but negativity to enter their lives. Going against their wishes, Leonardo was no longer welcome to stay in the family home, leaving her no choice but to move to her husband's town in Loria, Italy. The honeymoon didn't last long as the law sought justice when Leonardo was charged for fraud and was sent to prison in 1927. Now feeling shameful in her husband's hometown, the couple moved once again, this time to the region of Lacedonia as soon as Leonardo was released. Another move equated to a fresh start, and even with an optimistic attitude, things just didn't seem to quite work in Leonardo's favor. The feeling of being at peace at last was short-lived during this time in 1930. The couple had moved into a house when it unexpectedly was destroyed after a tragic 6.6 magnitude earthquake hit the entire region, killing over 1,400 people. Helpless, the two packed what little they could salvage and took to their final destination, the city of Korea. Finally settled in, Leonardo was able to make a successful living owning her own little shop. Many in town knew her as a sweet lady, a kind neighbor, and a devoted mother. For once it felt as if the curse she believed in for so long was stripped away from their lives. Or so it seemed. For Leonardo, pregnancy would prove to be not a blessing, but a devastating curse in her life. Grief had struck Leonardo. Though she became pregnant 17 different times, she miscarried three times and lost 10 additional children while they were young and vulnerable to many illnesses. With four remaining children to raise, Leonardo was incredibly protective of them, doing anything to keep them from harm's way. Out of the four, Leonardo was extremely protective and loving towards her son, Giuseppe. He was considered to be her favorite child and adored him. Being a woman who fully believed in fortune-telling, Leonardo visited a woman who stated she was to have many children but would lose every single one of them before she died. Fear was instilled into her mind as she thought of losing the few surviving children she had. This fear took 
took a drastic shift towards reality when in 1939 Italian men were being drafted to prepare for World War II, and with Leonardo's luck, Giuseppe happened to be one out of the many young men who were chosen to leave his town and fight. As a tremendously loving mother, Leonardo knew very well what she was going to do to protect her son Giuseppe from dying. She would sacrifice another human to take his place in the afterlife. With the desire to uncover more in her life, Leonardo sought the help of another fortune teller. This time, the fortune teller who practiced palm reading stated, In your right hand I see prison, in your left a criminal asylum. Regardless of her reading, Leonardo put her son before her foretold future and carried out a deviated plan in hopes to keep him alive. Working part-time as a fortune teller herself, Leonardo found her sacrifices in middle-aged women who were vulnerable and hopeless. Her first victim, Faustina Setti, was unmarried and unhappy with her love life. Leonardo then told her victim of a suitable man she would marry in the town of Pola. Leonardo then instructed the woman not to tell a single person of her departure and to write out postcards to every friend and family member, letting them know that everything in her life was going very well. Ecstatic, the woman jumped to the good news and packed for her anxious, long-awaited trip to meet her future husband. Unfortunately, Faustina would never live to see this day. Eternally grateful for the good news, Faustina made one last trip to Leonardo's house to say goodbye. Upon entering Leonardo's house for one last thank you and a goodbye, Leonardo offered Faustina a glass of wine. Faustina obliged and happily drank the glass given to her. What she didn't realize was that the good fortune teller that she had trusted all along had placed drugs inside of her drink, knocking Faustina unconscious in minutes. With time ticking, Leonardo took advantage of what was presented to her and immediately killed Faustina with an axe, dragged the body into a closet, and later chopped the body up into nine individual pieces. Blood from the victim was then entirely drained into a basin in order to make disposal much faster and easier. Leonardo went on to state in her official memoirs, I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine. Kneading all the ingredients together, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. Leonardo was able to receive a good amount's worth of Faustina's life savings for the services that she had provided her prior to her sudden death. One human sacrifice was good, however, it wasn't guaranteed in Leonardo's mind, so she believed she just had to keep going. The second woman to seek out Leonardo was Francesca Suavi, a woman who was in search for employment. Unable to find the job she desired in her town, Leonardo instructed her to travel to Piacenza, as she was more than certain that a teaching job was awaiting the woman there. Once again, Leonardo prohibited the woman from telling anyone about her whereabouts and insisted that the woman mail everyone letters in hopes that family and friends heard from her. Continuing the same pattern, Leonardo drugged and killed Francesca on September 5th, 1940. Being no different than the pre 
previous victim, Francesca's body was boiled and remade into homemade bars of soap and tea cakes, which Leonardo happily shared with the neighbors, keeping up her positive reputation and distracting the community from the disappearances. Reports stated that Leonardo also collected money from this victim for her services as well. A third woman, Virginia Cachopo, a talented former soprano that once performed to many in the La Scala Theater, came to Leonardo in hopes of finding future employment opportunities. Leonardo enthusiastically informed Virginia of a factory job that was calling for her in Florence, instructing the woman to do as she told her previous victims the woman packed, sent out her letters, and was sure to visit one more time before leaving town. On September 30th of that same year, Leonardo drugged and murdered Virginia in the same fashion as the other women. Because of her gracious fortunes, Leonardo was rewarded with money and jewels prior to the murder of her third victim. Leonardo became quick and efficient at her work, making her a pro in her craft. In her memoir, Leonardo included that she particularly enjoyed consuming her third victim, going so far as to go into great detail of the taste of the woman, saying she ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. The woman was really sweet. Questions began to arise in the town. Virginia's sister-in-law was particularly worried and needed answers as to where she was. Growing suspicious, the sister-in-law asked around and was told that Virginia was last spotted entering the house of Leonardo. Fearing the worst, she told authorities and immediately reached out to the superintendent of police. An investigation took place and in no time, police arrested Leonardo. Once in custody, Leonardo was quick to confess her murders, once discovering that police had also arrested her son Giuseppe as a possible accomplice. Leonardo was tried for murder in 1946. Because of the unusual circumstances of the case, many flocked to watch the trial unravel in court. Calm and collected while on the stand, it seemed that Leonardo was not phased in the least by her brutal acts. Just as the fortune teller had foretold, Leonardo was found guilty of her crimes and sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum. While admitted to the asylum, Leonardo made an official memoir titled An Embittered Soul's Confession. Leonardo Cianciulli passed away on October 15, 1970 from cerebral apoplexy at the age of 76. Many of the tools Leonardo used to murder, dismember, and cook her victims are now displayed at the Criminological Museum in Rome. That's all in this file. Pregnancy and motherhood are something many women see as a great joy in their lives, one many aspire to achieve. However, one mother's joy was soured as her mind slowly deteriorated, culminating in a terrible tragedy so few thought would ever happen. All this and more as we explore the anatomy of murder. June 20th, 2001, shortly after her husband, Rusty Yates, left for work at around 9 a.m., 37-year-old mother of five, Andrea Yates, drew a bath in her Clear Lake, Texas home. Her mother-in-law, Dora Yates, was scheduled to arrive at the home around 10 a.m. after Rusty had left, but in that hour, 
the unthinkable happened. Police arrived to find a disturbing scene. Her five children, seven-year-old Noah, five-year-old John, three-year-old Paul, two-year-old Luke, and six-month-old daughter Mary were dead. Each child was laid out on her bed, her infant daughter Mary in her son John's arms, and their bodies were covered by a sheet. The only exception was that of her oldest son, Noah, whom she left floating in the bathtub before calling emergency services. She followed this up with a call to her husband, telling him to come home. Of all people who would commit such a terrible act, Andrea Yates was the last person anyone suspected of harming her children. Born Andrea Kennedy on July 2, 1964 in Hallsville, Texas, to a German mother and Irish-American father, Andrea was the youngest of five children and raised in a loving home. She was an extremely bright student, a member of the National Honor Society, captain of her high school swim team, and graduated as her class's valedictorian. She attended a pre-nursing program at the University of Houston from 1982 to 1984, before graduating from the University of Texas School of Nursing in 1986 with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Three years later, she met NASA computer engineer Russell Yates, known as Rusty, in her apartment complex. The relationship moved quickly, as they moved in together shortly after meeting and then married in 1993. The couple announced they would seek to have as many babies as nature allowed, giving birth to their first child, Noah, on February 26th the next year. Andrea gave up her career as a nurse to become a full-time mother. Second son, John, followed on December 15, 1995, and third son, Paul, on September 13, 1997. Rusty, a devout Christian, followed the teachings of a non-denominational Christian missionary named Michael Warnecke, whom Rusty met while attending Auburn University. After beginning to date Andrea, who was raised as a Catholic, he introduced her to Michael's teachings, which emphasized subservient wives and repenting one's sins in fear of God's wrath. Andrea seemed to embrace the teachings and took them to heart, the family eventually lived a minimalistic lifestyle out of a trailer, moving to Florida for a brief period when Rusty accepted employment there. Upon moving back to Houston in 1997, this transitioned into living in a motorhome. Signs of Andrea's mental health decline began shortly after the birth of their fourth son, Luke, on February 15, 1999. Andrea, who in her late teens and early adulthood suffered from bulimia nervosa and depression, began showing signs of suicidal ideation and depression, culminating in a suicide attempt by overdosing on June 17, 1999. She was hospitalized for this 
and prescribed antidepressants, but within a day was admitted to another hospital after threatening to slit her throat with a knife. This time, she was prescribed a variety of medications, including the antipsychotic Haldol, which seemed to improve her condition, along with the fact that the family moved into an actual house. However, the stabilization was limited, as Andrea suffered a nervous breakdown a month later, after attempting suicide twice more, forcing her to be hospitalized each time. She was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis and major depressive disorder with psychotic features on different occasions, though she and her husband both considered her mental illness to be a pregnancy-related issue. She was referred to Dr. Eileen Starbranch, who advised the couple against having more children to prevent further psychosis. The couple disregarded this advice, choosing to conceive again due to their religious beliefs. Andrea, in therapy, spoke of feeling as though she lost her identity by becoming a stay-at-home mother and housewife, and that Rusty's beliefs and high expectations of her and their children, in addition to her own, weighed heavily on her mind. She felt an enormous pressure to raise perfect children and be the perfect mother, something she had convinced herself that she was not, and she felt trapped in her own life. Andrea chose to cease therapy and medical treatment in late 1999, and soon after became pregnant with her fifth child, giving birth to their first daughter, Mary, on November 30th, 2000. Andrea coped well for several months, and then her father Andrew fell ill and died on March 12, 2001. This sent her into overdrive. She became extremely depressed and paranoid, unable to eat or sleep, and she stopped nursing her daughter. Assessed and admitted for evaluation in April of 2001, Andrea was unresponsive, refusing food and liquids, pulled out portions of her hair, and began showing signs of delusional thinking and hallucinations, but denied having psychosis or thinking of harming her children. After a brief hospitalization, she was placed back onto a medical regimen and discharged under the care of Dr. Mohammed Saeed, who chose to reinstate her previous medications with adjustments, diagnosing her with postpartum depression. However, it soon became clear Andrea was not improving, remaining lethargic, depressed, and having suicidal thoughts. It was around this time that Andrea began having fears and thoughts that she may harm her children, resulting in a catatonic episode on May 3rd, where she drew a bath in the middle of the day. Suspecting this may have been a suicide attempt, she was hospitalized for a fifth time for a week, then released due to insurance issues. Andrea and Rusty both reportedly told Dr. Saeed of improvement, resulting in the reduction and discontinuation of Haldol in her regimen. In the month leading up to the murders, Andrea experienced delusions of Satan being in her home and tormenting thoughts that she was a terrible mother. She additionally believed that a child protection agency and her former psychiatrist placed cameras in her home and believed she was seeing connections in television shows and movies. Despite experiencing terrifying visions and hearing voices, she disclosed this to no one. Friends and family noted her wandering aimlessly around the house, unable to communicate or show emotion, 
often holding her daughter as her sons acted out from a lack of attention. Rusty Yates was advised by Dr. Saeed to not leave Andrea alone as she was unable of caring for herself or her children. However, Rusty was convinced otherwise and wanted to increase her independence. He began leaving her alone for increasing periods of time. His mother, Dora, was often at the home to assist Andrea. However, Dora once regarded Andrea as lazy and seemed to be of little help to her daughter-in-law. On the morning of the murders, Andrea fed her children and waited for her husband to leave to start the water. One by one, she brought each of her children into the bathroom and held them under the bathwater until they were dead. Her oldest son, Noah, attempted to run away from her after witnessing Mary floating in the tub, but she eventually drowned him as well. Andrea was arrested shortly after police arrived. Upon being interviewed by police, she confessed to the murders of her children. She stated she was convinced that she was a terrible mother, unable to raise them correctly, and thus they would not go to heaven upon death. She believed Satan tainted her children, making them sinful and disobedient, that they were not developing appropriately, and that killing them was the only way to lead to righteousness and salvation. She expressed remorse for her actions, but genuinely believed she did the right thing to save her children. The Yates children were laid to rest on June 27, 2001, at Forest Park East Cemetery. Between her arrest and trial, she was kept in isolation and was watched closely for suicidal behavior. Several doctors noted psychotic and delusional behavior that improved upon being administered Haldol and other medications. During her first trial in 2002, the focus was establishing whether Andrea Yates was psychotic, severely mentally ill, and incapable of knowing right and wrong while committing the murders, a legal test known as the McNaughton Rules. The prosecution argued Andrea was not insane at the time of the murders and was capable of distinguishing right from wrong. The defense argued that she was indeed psychotic at the time of the crime. Nonetheless, the jury rejected her insanity defense, and she was found guilty of two counts of capital murder. Prosecutors sought the death penalty, but she was sentenced to life in prison. Three years later, in January of 2005, the Court of Appeals reversed her conviction when an admission of false testimony by expert witness and psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz came to light. Dr. Dietz stated during his testimony that Andrea, an avid viewer of the crime television series Law & Order, was possibly influenced by an episode involving a mother who drowned her children and was declared insane when no such episode actually existed at all. Andrea was granted a new trial a year later, entering a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. She was released on bail the next month on the condition that she admit herself to a mental health treatment facility. Six months later, on July 26, 2006, after three days' deliberation, Andrea was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was committed to North Texas State Hospital. She is now housed in a low-security mental hospital in Kerrville, Texas. Rusty and Andrea divorced in 2004, though Rusty maintains his support of Andrea. He has since remarried and has a son.
Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.